Uh, just wanted to say thank you all for uh, being so gracious. Um, it's, uh, it's definitely an adjustment, number three, um, but also joyful. So um, thank you all for just your kind words and, you know, text messages and prayers and all that stuff. It, it's been really sweet, so thank you. Also, a uh, special thanks to uh, Scott Eichler. If you were here uh, last week, he, um, he, he, pinch, he was doing some pinch hitting while I was out on, on injured reserve. And, uh, you know, I, I, I watched it online, and I was just— first, I was just really grateful that Scott just kind of took, took it on and just owned it. Um, and second, just you could tell, like, he just put a lot of effort and heart and thought into it. And if you're interested, you really should check it out. Um, it's, on, it's on our website. You can check out—all of our uh, sermons are on our website— uh, he kind of con- compares and contrasts uh, Saul before Saul becomes the Apostle Paul. And it's a, it's a really interesting and valuable message. So, Scott, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it. <laughs> However, you are no longer allowed to preach because of that three-piece suit that you wore. <laughs> he literally had a three-piece suit and a bow tie. And uh, something was said about how um, much of a slob I am. So that will, that will not happen ever again. <laughs> Um, <laughs> no, nah, I'm just joking, but seriously. Uh, but if you've been with us uh, for a long time, uh, with, that, um, with that little break, we, we've actually been uh, kind of going through the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and we've been uh, trying to get a fresh look at the old book. Um, the idea is that if you're not uh, like a huge church person, there's still stories that, that are kind of in the culture, right? Like you might have heard of Adam and Eve or Cain and Abel or Noah and the flood. Those kinds of, the, the, that's still out there. It's, it's, you you might have heard of it. And, and if you have, then hey, great, now let's go to the source and check out what those stories are actually about and try and see if maybe those um, can speak, even though they're thousands of years old, can speak into our lives today. Uh, if you are, like, if, you're, if you've been in church for a long time, you, you've probably, you're bored to death of these stories. You're like, how many times can someone talk about, today we're going to talk about uh, Joseph and the uh, multicolored coat. How many times can we tell that story? Well, the idea is if we pay attention to the text and we look deeply at it and we're careful, we might get to see a different angle. We might get to see God speak and, and, and kind of talk to us in a different way, something that's fresh and new and can have a transformative impact on our lives. And so we're going to continue that today. Uh, I'm not sure. I think I might have um, the question too late there, Marilyn. I think I sent you like a—it doesn't matter. But the, the question I would like you to, to think about in the back of your minds today, and you'll, you'll, I think you'll be surprised that this text actually speaks to this, is a question that um, human beings have been dealing with for um, thousands and thousands of years. It's, um, it's something that we are constantly worried and thinking about. Even if it's not conscious, it's sort of in the back of our minds. And the question is— who am I? What makes me me? If, um, if you're a professional philosopher nowadays, um, I know of at least three professional philosophers who answer the question, who am I, with the answer, an illusion. I'm not real. Uh, if you are taking a philosophy course on personal identity at MIT, Harvard, or Cambridge, um, you will be told uh, in that class that our best science indicates that I am a figment of my brain's imagination. There is nothing that keeps me the same person from point A to point B, from time uh, T to time T plus one. I am just a series of collections of thoughts, and I fooled myself 
My brain has fooled myself into thinking that I am the same person today as I was on the day that I was born. It's commonly, we're not quite at consensus level yet uh, at our, for our elite betters, um, our, the wisest people in, in the world, uh, but we're getting there. It's a plurality now of people who are the smartest folks who've done the most research, and they're at the point now where they're saying, um, in general, that, that human, human beings are, um, not only are they just animals, but there's nothing that keeps a human being the same uh, from today to tomorrow. Which is a, kind of a frightening thought. And of course, none of them live like that. Um, but that's what they think. I'm going to suggest to you that today, when we read the story of Joseph, of all things, that the Bible is not going to answer that completely, but we're going to start to get a picture, a piece, of what Scripture thinks makes you, you. And it might be surprising. And it might have some implications for how you are living uh, today, and how you've been living, and how you're going to live tomorrow. So let's um, look. I've basically lightly edited the New King James uh, for today, and I, I just invite you to read with me. It's on the back of your note sheets. Genesis 37. These are Jacob's stories. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's, you could say, other wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel, that's another word for Jacob. So Jacob, his, his dad, loved Joseph more than all his t- children because he was the son of his old age. Also he made him a tunic or a cloak of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. So he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, all of us, binding sheaves of of grain in the field, bundles of, of grain. And behold, my bundle arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to mine. And his brother said to him, shall you indeed reign, rule over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come down, come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Family dynamics. So fun. Uh, I, I just, I want to, if we, if we pay attention, I, I think there's a lot here. And it's not, the sermon's not about family dynamics, but we're going to hit some of that. Because clearly, there's a lot going on here in this family. Um, and so, if, just, just check in here. Uh, first off, one thing to notice, I meant to highlight all, Bilhah and Zilpah. Um, if you're following the story, Jacob, Joseph's dad, uh, ends up having two wives, Rachel and Leah. Okay? Uh, he loves Rachel and thinks she's great. He basically ignores Leah. That said, Leah is the one who produces a whole bunch of children for him. So he, he treats her badly, but she gives him lots of heirs. Rachel um, doesn't, she doesn't produce uh, any heirs until Joseph. And Joseph's like the second youngest of Jacob's sons. And, and on top of uh, Rachel and Leah, both of them, Rachel and Leah had um, maids or maidservants. 
and they're kind of like the, the ladies who ran their household. And they gave their lady servants to uh, Jacob to also uh, procreate with. And so jo- Joseph has basic, or, uh, J- Jacob has basically four women who are giving him heirs, and he, he gets 12 of them. Now, Joseph is the second youngest, and uh, he's obviously not super popular. And so he's out in the field. He's younger than his, these other guys that are with him. They're older brothers, um, sons of, of uh, his mom's maid and his, uh, his I guess, half-mom's maid. And, and, and they're all out in, in the field. They're working. They're shepherding. And then Joseph goes and tattles to his dad and says, yeah, those guys, they're not so great at it. He's 17. And when you're 17, you know everything. And you've figured out life. And what you're really, really good at at 17 is telling everybody else what they're doing wrong. Like, you're, you're, you have like a, an, an uncanny ability to f- see everything that's messed up in the world and be like, man, when I'm running the show, we're going to get this stuff figured out. That's exactly what Joseph's up to. He sees his older brothers and he's like, oh, you're the worst at shepherding. And, and instead, of, instead of sort of, you know, talking to them directly, maybe doing some conflict uh, uh, management, he just goes to his dad and he kind of whispers to him. He's like, dad, yeah, it turns out um, some of my older brothers, they're just, meh, they're not that great. <laughs> and then, then Genesis tells us, Jacob loved his son more than anybody else. So, so Joseph comes up, he's like, yeah, the other guys, they're awful. And, and Jacob's like, man, you are the best. Like, this would be like, you know, your 17-year-old rebellious kid comes up and is like, dude, everything's wrong. And you're like, you're so right. Gosh, when you criticize the world, you really, you really, you cut to the core of it. Well done, son. Which is a really sweet parenting. Um, but also kind of problematic. Not only does uh, Jacob say, yeah, son, you've got it all figured out, but then he, he goes to the next step and he makes him a special uh, cloak of many colors. We'll talk about that in a second. But the thing to notice is that it's not like Jacob's or Joseph's brothers haven't figured this out. They can kind of tell what the deal is. And as a result, bitterness kind of wells up. And they, I mean, if there's one word that you hear over and over in this text, like that rings in your ear, it's hate, hate, hate. Now, I don't want to ruin the Old Testament for you, but uh, here's the truth. That whole thing, many colors, it's not really in the Hebrew. Um, what we're, we kind of, I have a couple pictures here of what we grow up sort of hearing. If you're familiar with, you know, Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Uh, that's, that's that kid on the right. He's like, woo! Um, that's probably not, uh, how anyone would dress ever. And, and so, and so that's probably not what's going on there. It's interesting. The Hebrew, um, it's, a, it's a very strange phrase and, uh, and most people didn't know what to do with it. And so actually where we get, um, many colored was from, uh, second, 200 to 300 BC when, um, the Jewish rabbis were translating from Hebrew into Greek. And they weren't sure what to do with this. And so they, they just kind of agreed, let's just call it many colored. And, uh, then Jerome, when he translated into Latin, picked that up. And it's been with us ever since. But that's not really in the Hebrew. Uh, the Hebrew doesn't say many colored. Uh, there's words for that that it doesn't use. Instead, um, what the Hebrew actually says is, um, it's a cloak or a garment that reaches um, to the flat of your hands or below the ankle. That's the uh, Hebrew pash or pashim. Um, I have a picture of George III up there. He, he does have multiple colors, mostly like yellow and white. Um, one of the things you notice about royals, uh, royalty when they dress, um, is that their, their clothes don't fit. Right? Their clothes, their clothes are much too large. 
Uh, as many, so if those of you who, women who've been married, on your wedding day, you, your, your gown like trails behind you. And it's not something you would normally wear, but it's an indicator that you're special. When, um, when the text says down to the flat of your hand, notice where we keep our cuffs, right? Our cuffs don't go down to the flat of our hand. We keep them above because um, it makes our hands more useful. Uh, same with our, our, our pants. They don't go too far down. Otherwise, they would trip us up. Only somebody who doesn't have any work to do would ever have, you know, stuff that would flow everywhere. And the people who don't have any work to do in the ancient world are royalty. They're the princes and the bosses and the kings. They have other people do their work for them. Now, (laughs) what I think the scripture is indicating is Joseph's like, hey, dad, I know I'm only 17, but I know what a shepherd looks like, and these guys are doing a terrible job of it. He's like, gosh, you're right, son. (laughs) My my other children are terrible. If only only somebody um, as wise as you uh, could be put in authority over them. And so he gives him a cloak. He gives him a garment that makes him look like the boss. It makes him look like the person who's in charge, the authority figure. Um, And so if you really wanted to translate well, you'd say something like a princely robe or something like that. In fact, that's the only other time that this uh, Hebrew gets used in the Old Testament. It means that. It's talking about the robes of a royal person. In, in, in this case, the prin- a princess in 2 Samuel. So it's like a princely robe. It's a robe that, that confers authority. That's the first thing in your note sheets. Is that um, Jacob's coat represents his father's authority. The point is not that it's pretty. It's not that it's you know, good to look at. The point is that it sort of indicates that Joseph's a big deal. His dad is playing into his delusions of grandeur. I'd like to go back to the text and see how things go. Well, they get worse. Because not only does Joseph get the cloak that makes him look like he's in charge of things, and by the way, that'd be really offensive in the ancient world because he's a young man to be put in charge of your older brothers. Not very cool. Um, not only that, Joseph, I guess he's either um, a real punk or he's totally oblivious. Because he has a dream, and instead of keeping it to himself, he shares it with the people that already dislike him. Now, I want you to know something. This is a weird dream. We've been talking about dreams quite a bit. Um, The Old Testament likes to talk about dreams. Dreams are weird. When you talk about your dreams to people, normally what happens is they're like, oh, what did you eat before you went to bed? Or they're like... So like if I so let's just say I had this dream. I was like, I'm like, Air Bear, check it out. Last night I had this dream. And there was like all these bundles of wheat. And my bundle was standing up straight, and there was other bundles, and they were bowing to my bundle. And she would be like, Why are you dreaming about wheat? Like what and and how how is it that, that wheat can bow? Like that's weird. Notice the response of Joseph's brothers. They don't say, That's weird. Why do you, immediately, they go, shall you indeed reign over us? I mean, imagine that response. Like, you, some, they, they've got something on their mind. It's not like Joseph tells them, God gave me a dream, it means this. They hear it, and they immediately assume that his dreams are about him running the show. Interesting. Shall you indeed have dominion over us? Now they hate him even more. His dreams are playing out his coat. His coat is playing out his father's favoritism. I mean, not a happy family. 
although an interesting way of thinking about potentially parenting. Um, I have a couple of uh, ideas here kind of built on uh, Joseph's way of parenting, or I mean Jacob's way of parenting. Uh, on, the, uh, on the top uh, right there is, um, you can actually buy these. Uh, they're blue ribbons, uh, and if you can't read it, it says favorite child. And so I'm, I really think, I think this is going to be good. Because what it does is it encourages like a healthy competition amongst children to earn their parents' love. So, so I, so I can um, sort of passive-aggressively passive like indicate to Olivia that she's not living up to the standards that she ought to. And hopefully, hopefully that'll sort of change her mind and she'll, she'll realize obedience is probably better than not obeying. And maybe she can get a favorite child ribbon too. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. But, see, I'm an only child, so I never dealt with this. I was always the golden boy. Uh, but I, I've noticed, I've noticed people who have siblings, it's like, y'all kind of know that which one your parents like best. You kind of know. And if nobody ever says it unless your parents are sick. Um, but, but there's kind of a sense of like, like, oh, that's, <laughs> that's the kid that does everything right. And, uh, and that, you know, you're okay too, but, um, but boy, couldn't you be more like so-and-so? And, and, you know, if we're good parents, we try to avoid saying that. What's cool about Jacob, he just goes whole hog. He just throws it out the window. He's like, you know what? Forget it. I'm not even going to pretend. You're definitely the best. The rest of you are awful. I mean, wow. What a... And then, and then, uh, this apparently is true. I'm only beginning to learn if this is true. If you have three or more children, apparently this applies. Um, the oldest child, I follow the rules. That's Alice. Middle child, I'm the reason we have rules. That's Olivia. And then Soren, the rules don't apply to me. Yeah. Uh, the, the youngest child, children that I know, that's totally true. Because uh, by the time your parents get to number three, four, five, six, whatever, you just don't care. And so you're like, you're alive? Great. Um. Do, do you not get the sense that this is sort of the dynamic that's at play in Joseph's family, right? And, and, and the thing is, you don't have to get that sense. I mean, the scriptures are pretty explicit. Like, this is how it is. And you wonder for a second, man, like, why, why is Jacob, act, why does he father like this? What, what kind of dad does this? Um, and at least, you know, I can forgive, like, okay, you like one kid better than the other. All right, I get that. It's fine. You know, this one's funnier or whatever. But to, like, to like be like, oh, I'm going to give the king cloak to you. The rest of you, you're on your own. That's like, ooh. Especially he's, like, the youngest one. Where do these dynamics come from, and why are they the way they are? Uh, let's go back to the text. Hold that in your head. Hold that, hold that in your head. Um, and then, so, and then notice, notice that the same thing happens. Joseph still hasn't clued in, hasn't figured out that it's probably not a good idea to like go around telling his brothers uh, his dreams and how great he is. Now he goes to the next level, he has another dream. He goes to his brothers, he's like, look, this time, sun, moon, 11 stars. He has 11 brothers. Uh, isn't that great? It looks like, based on the text, that he's probably going around telling the story over and over. Because then it says, now he told it to his father and his brothers. So he's running around the household telling anyone who will listen, Check out this rad dream I had. And immediately, everyone's like, his dad hears the dream and immediately knows. He's like, even your mother and I are going to bow down before you? 
Remember, he hears the dream. He immediately figures out that the sun is dad, the moon is mom, the 11 stars are the brothers. Like he's just intuited this because he gets his kid to some extent. Presumably, Jacob's like, he's like, oh, I can see you being ruling over your brothers, but, but me too? That's over the line. One of the things uh, to note, and this is uh, in your note sheets, is that um, everyone who's around uh, Jacob or uh, Joseph, they assume, they know, they intuit that he expects to rule over them. Like, everyone who hears, no one has to interpret these dreams. Everyone gets it immediately because they know who Joseph is. And so they they assume, they understand that he's expecting to rule over his elders. That he's going to be the boss. What? Why is this family so screwed up? The answer, um, I think, is at the uh, it's the beginning, and for that matter, what does this have to do with who am I? Right? If you um, if you just look at the very first verse we looked at, I think it kind of has the the answer. It begins. These are Jacob's stories. Now, now, the text there in Hebrew, um, it's really probably more like this is, in fact, the New King James, I've smoothed this. The New King James will say this is the history of Jacob. This is, sometimes you'll get the account of Jacob. This word, um, it, it can mean, it can introduce a genealogy in Scripture. So it can, it can introduce like Adam begot so-and-so who begot so-and-so who begot so-and-so who begot so-and-so. It can mean that, but it can also mean an account or a story of a person, Right? Well, isn't that weird that it says these are Jacob's stories? Is this story about Jacob? Is he the hero of the story? Is he the center of the story? No. This is Joseph's story. In fact, if you keep going on, all you're going to hear about is Joseph, 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 Joseph. Why does it say Jacob's story? What's, the, what's, what's going on there? Huh. Even better. What's going to happen? I mean, if you know the story, you know how this, this thing, and it just gets worse and worse. I, I think I have some pictures there, Marilyn, of, of the, um, the things that are going to happen. Basically, uh, the brothers get so sick and tired of Joseph that they throw him in a well to die, and then they decide not to kill him. And so, in a fit of incredible mercy, they sell him into slavery. Uh, so, wow, what a... I mean, that's kind of how the story ends. Like, like it goes on, but that's kind of where we go. And then we follow Joseph as he's off into slavery in Egypt. How is this Jacob's story? Well, if you know anything about Jacob, you might know, and we talked a little bit about this, um, that uh, he was the younger of two siblings when he was a young man, when he was a boy. And what he did, because he didn't like being the younger, is he stole his older brother's birthright and his inheritance. He, the younger, set himself above the older, Esau. When Jacob uh, got a little older and it was time to marry, he went and he uh, found the girl that he loved, Rachel. But Rachel's dad isn't going to let him marry Rachel unless he marries Leah first. And so he marries this girl and ignores her for the rest of her life. Just so that he can be with this other woman that he truly loves and dotes on and is affectionate to Jacob is, and we, we said this a couple weeks ago, Jacob's a scumbag. That's the technical term for the kind of person Jacob is. 
And, and then scripture has this moment where it says, okay, now I'm going to tell you Jacob's story. Here's what happens to a guy like Jacob. Here's the, the legacy that he leaves. Guess what? His second youngest son decides he's going to be better than the oldest son, even though that violates culture and, and all the rules. Hey, guess what? He's going to um, lavish all of his affection on one son and ignore all the others. And there's going to be consequences for that because they're going to they're catch on. The, the very um, character, the very um, kind of person that Jacob has always been in his life, guess what? It shows up in his kids. It shows up all around his household. The very person that he grew to be is being passed on. The spirituality that Jacob does or doesn't have gets passed on. This is Jacob's story, and his story is kind of a bad one. That's uh, the next thing in your note sheets um, is that the, the Bible assumes that part of what makes me me is my spiritual heritage and legacy. When you talk about Jacob, you, the Bible doesn't just talk about what Jacob did or didn't do. This is interesting. It talks more about not just what Jacob did or didn't do, but Jacob's predecessors and those who come after him. They are all part of Jacob's story. What it is to be Jacob is not just to be this guy who did X, Y, and Z, but also to be the, the member, the son of Isaac and to be the father of these 12 men who try to kill each other. To be Jacob is to be embedded into a larger story that includes a whole lot of other people, a spiritual story of God saving the world through them in these weird ways. One of the interesting things that, you know, we live um, in the, the sort of the aftermath of, uh, of Descartes. I think, therefore, I am. Before Descartes, um, most uh, cultures in the world just assumed that you were, um, that what made you you was your family, your household, your tribe. We tend to think that what makes me me is if I, you know, Tom, who are you? Um, when I look in the mirror, I don't recognize me because in my mind I'm still 24. Um, and just exceedingly good-looking, very trim, uh, but red hair, um, you know, outspoken. I like to do X, Y, and Z. I think about all the things that I've done, the memories that I have, places that I've been. Me, 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 me. That's how I answer who am I. That's how we all answer who am I. And yet, when the Bible says Jacob's story, it starts talking about everyone around him, before and after. It's weird for us. I remember I was in uh, Japan and uh, I had this friend, and she was, uh, she was an, an English teacher, so she could, she could sort of get along with English pretty well. And uh, one time we uh, were hanging out, and uh, we got to talking about ethics, uh, because she, had, she was concerned about some kid stealing or something like that. And I was like, well, you know, what makes, why don't you steal? She says, well, stealing's wrong. I'm like, okay, well, what makes it wrong? This was her answer. That's not what we do. No, for us, we're like, oh, well, what makes stealing wrong is that a person has property, and that's like a right that you have, and it's protected by the government, blah, blah, blah. And if you violate that right, you're... No, no, no. In Japan, it's, well, that's not what we do. Being us, being me, means living this way and having these types of inclinations and these sorts of practices. This is what it is to be us. You even hear an echo of if she were, in Abba Sensei, were to start stealing, she would stop being herself a little bit. 
because she would no longer fit in her community. The scripture assumes the exact same thing about us and our lives, that that what makes us us is that we're embedded in a spiritual story. We have spiritual um, predecessors and spiritual heirs, that what makes me me is not just what I do, but also where I've come from and what I'm leaving behind. And if we look at what Jacob left behind, he left behind a mess. Imagine, just imagine how great it would be if you could like jump into the story and right before Joseph uh, starts you know, sharing his dreams, make, maybe see, make him see a therapist, right? Be like, so Joseph, um, gosh, you sure, you sure do seem to be obsessed with you know, ruling your brothers. Huh, can you tell me about, I don't know, your father? He's like, oh, dad's great. He's great. Uh, he, he stole his uh, birthright from his older brother, and so he went from bottom to the top. What a, what a guy. And then, uh, man, he really hates my, my stepmom, but he loves my mom. And, uh, and, and that's great for me since I'm, I'm her son. Uh, uh, dot, 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 dot. Imagine if Joseph could have looked at the spiritual heritage that's being passed on to him and how that might, that reflection might have changed the way that he begins to think about what he's doing and how he's acting. We have that opportunity right here and right now. We can start to think. We can say, what makes me me? Where is my spiritual heritage? What is it? And how might I be leaving something behind? And more, more than that, how can I become the person that God wants me? When I say, who am I? How can I become myself? How can I become the kind of person that God wants me to be? How can me finally, truly, absolutely be me? I have some uh, thoughts about that. Um, becoming yourself in Christ. Uh, there are some people here, um, who have maybe like grown up in church and you have a really rich uh, church background. You've got deep roots, okay? Got a picture of the deep roots? Yeah, that's you. You got like these thick roots. And if you look back, you can begin naming off the people who had a major spiritual influence in your life. You can start thinking about so-and-so who did this, so-and-so who did that, and they shaped you. And, and they, they, they brought into your life all these ideas and, and thoughts of who God is, what God is like. Um, and, and those things have been pro- powerfully influential, and they have, they have given you stability, joy, solace. You, you can rest comfortable in who God is because you have this incredible legacy, these deep roots. I want to suggest, though, that not only do you have these deep roots, some of those roots probably aren't as nourishing as they should be. There are probably people and influences that you've had that maybe need to be revised or changed. That you, you may have picked up a few bad roots along the way. And so even though you've come to a place where you're really engaged with who God is and you're comfortable in that and you know that, there might be parts of things that need to be rearranged. And how do you, you need to investigate, you need to look at your roots in the same way that we wish Joseph could have looked at Jacob and made some critical thinking about it. There's some people here uh, who have shallow roots. If I were to ask you, uh, sometimes I do this um, when I'm, you know, at lunch with people. I love to do it in my classes with my students to say, like, well, what's your spiritual heritage? Where do you come from? Like, how, you know, how do you conceive of yourself? And very often, people are like, I don't know. I've been bouncing around churches my whole life, or I, didn't, I wasn't involved in church. I don't really know. I don't, I don't have, like, a you know, I'm not Presbyterian, and I'm not this or that. Like, I don't know what I am. 
These are people, and maybe this is you, you have shallow roots. You, you, you don't have like a really solid thought. Oh, man, I think I have a shallow roots shot there. Yeah, that right. That, that tree, that tree, it like, it got blown over in a windstorm like Hurricane Florence. Total bust, that hurricane. I was really looking forward to like, you know, Katrina part two, like we'd all get together and try to help all the, now I guess it's just a storm. Oh, well. Anyway, that, uh, that tree right there, it, it fell over because its roots were only a, a foot deep. And so it didn't have any kind of nourishment. It wasn't getting nourished from the soil, and it wasn't deeply rooted down. It wasn't, and so it fell over. Likewise, there are some of you here who, if you think about it, you really don't have a whole lot of deep, nourishing roots and, and legacy, heritage of spirituality. And as a result, you might find yourself kind of blowing around. You're like, well, this, you know, this, this is good, I guess, maybe. It could be this. I don't know. I mean, I, uh, uh. that's a really dangerous place to be. Especially if you're a dude. You have got to have deep roots. Your family depends on it. Your friends depend on it. Uh, we mentioned uh, Bill, Captain Bill of the CBS Express the Community Bible Study Express. Guys, if you're a guy and you don't have deep roots, you can't think of the people who've mentored you, who've changed you, who shaped you, go join that Bible study. Start getting more than just your 40 minutes of me every Sunday telling you about the Bible. Instead, get, get into it and engage with it with other people who can, you can begin forming those roots with so that you can start being nourished, so that you can become strong, that you can start to have the potential for a spiritual legacy. Don't go the Jacob route. And just kind of go through life doing what you like and hope everything works out. It won't. You will carry your dysfunctionality with you. All right. You get your roots. You're deeply rooted. You can talk about your spiritual heritage. You know the places and the people you come from. You understand how scripture works in your life. You have a very solid idea of who God is, the gracious God who gave his son. You're a tree. You're all grown up. You might become a barren tree. It is very possible, very easy, in fact, in our contemporary culture to just gather for yourself all the stuff. Because, you know, you're like, who am I? Oh, I'm just me. I need a whole bunch of things and make me feel good about me and make me happy and all that. And then part of that spirituality, and so you grab and grab and grab and you get those deep roots and you become a strong, wonderful tree and, the, and, you're, and there's, no, there's no leaves, there's no fruit. There's not, you have served yourself and you've become strong and you have really gotten that good sense of who God is and what God is about and yet then you just stop. And you're like, man, it's good to be a tree. I love my roots. Trees were not meant to just stand there. The whole point of a tree is to make more trees by having fruit and leaves that get spread out. And they add their acorns or what? I don't understand biology, but I think it has something to do with trees making other trees through like pollination or something. That's the goal of a tree. Okay? That's what trees do. If you're like, oh, I'm an awesome tree, and you look and all of your limbs are barren so that we can take a sweet black and white photo like that, then you, you're missing it. Not only that, 
there's really no such thing as a barren tree. If you think that you're just hoarding and deepening your roots, and all, you know what you're actually doing? You're producing rotten fruit. Because you, you think you're, you're just serving yourself, but guess what? You can't be abstracted. You can't be pulled away from the people around you. They see what you're doing. They understand that you're kind of about you. And as a result, that changes them, especially if you got kids. It doesn't have to be kids. It could be close friends. It could be parents, family. They start to see that really what you're about is this. And as a result, that changes them. Because remember, none of us is just me. We're all a part of each other's stories. And so if you start doing that, what you're really doing is you're not just being barren. You're actually poisoning others in your community. You are hurting them because you are not investing in them. This is what we should be. This is the goal. Imagine if Jacob, imagine if he'd stopped and he'd thought and he'd recognized the spiritual legacy he was leading. If he'd started to recognize that who he was was becoming impoverished, weak and damaged because of how he was treating those who came before and those who came after. If he had instead made a different choice and, and had a changed and said, God, I want to be more like you instead of more like me, then maybe, maybe all of the stuff that Joseph and his brothers go through could have been avoided. Maybe he could have had Joseph, and Joseph could have, instead of being like, hey, hey, I'm awesome, he could have been like, I'm pretty good, but you guys are great too. Maybe his brothers, instead of you know, seething with hatred, could have been like, He's 17. No one knows what they're doing when they're 17. Just give him, give him a few years. He'll be fine. Maybe, maybe the story could have been different. Maybe the fruit of, of, of Jacob's life could have been healthy and ripe and bright. And maybe as you're looking at your life, maybe the fruit that's being developed in your life, maybe it too needs to change a little bit. Maybe you need to recognize where your, your heritage is, is, is messed up and needs to be changed where you need to be changed so that your habits and your activity can, can, can bless and benefit your legacy, the people who are coming after you, who are with you. If you really believe that you are not just me, YOLO, one life, you live only, only live once, whatever it is, and if you really believe that there's a whole eternal story going on of which you are a small part connected to all the other parts right here in this place, the people sitting next to you and before and behind you in the pews, if, if you really believe that that's you and you understand that that's eternity, then imagine how important it must be to develop a legacy, to develop a spiritual nurturing that will go on and make the whole uh, community flower. Joseph's a cautionary tale. Not just for moms and dads, but for anybody who's a part of a community. Everything we do together affects us. And everything we don't do together affects us. If we want to have a healthy spiritual body, we've got to all be in it together. Let's pray.
Gracious God, um, we thank you uh, for cautionary tales, for warnings in Scripture. We confess that it's really easy for us um, to become self-focused, to really believe that we're um, just individuals, that it's just me, 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 and that we can somehow be pulled out of the communities of faith in which we're a part. God, take that, um, that conviction, that deeply rooted conviction, and just, just do away with it, Lord. Just pull it out. Instead, uh, well up in our hearts a, a, a notion that we really um, are parts of each other. That what it is to be fully ourselves is to be a part of a spiritual heritage and a spiritual legacy. I pray, God, for every person here that, um, that we'll all develop deep, strong roots in faith, in scripture, with each other, in prayer, with you. And that those nourishing roots will, will generate healthy, bright fruit. And that the whole community will benefit. We set all this before you in the name of your Son, by whose death we are made free. Amen.